But I do think, again, the important point now is that that cycle appears to be reaching a tipping point where Chevron, Exxon, and energy companies and other commodity producers like industrial metals, they're now printing money. Commodity prices are actually high. Uh, they've not, they're not spending a ton, like their profits are through the roof. And they are now sitting on uh, just like this war chest of billions and tens of billions of dollars. And so I think it will be interesting how they decide to spend their money. And I do think they probably think they know how to spend it better than <laughs> BlackRock and other investors. Oh, yeah. And they probably do, right? Like if you're a co like company executive who this is your job, this is you spent decades <laughs> doing this. They know these clean energy industries, they know how to be profitable. And at the end of the day, again, that's all they're trying to do is make the most money for themselves and their shareholders. So um, I don't know about some of the specific like moral and political and other arguments. Frankly, I think they just, and they've pushed back on. Welcome to AFO Wealth Management Forward, a podcast about finance, accounting, technology, and entrepreneurship. We apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work so we can help others grow both personally and professionally. In this ever-evolving marketplace, we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services. Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success. A podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm again joined by Managing Director and Partner here at Arrowroot Family Office, Diane Young. Diane, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's a lovely, a lovely day here in the state of Michigan. I love it. Well, we have an exciting topic here to discuss today. We are joined by a returning guest. Uh, he was back on with us uh, during the SPAC craze of 2021. He's a Duke graduate. So we are rival basketball fans since I'm a UCLA Bruin. Uh, he is the current uh, climate finance reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where he covers how investors are financing the transition to clean energy. Uh, so we're here to talk about ESG. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest, uh, Amrith Ramkumar. Amrith, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on again. Awesome. Well, let's dive right in here. There's a big trend in the world of investing, and that's ESG. Uh, it's been one of the fastest growing sectors, uh, but it's also receiving a lot of criticism and backlash. Uh, first and foremost, can you just kind of talk to our audience about what ESG is and then some of the issues regarding uh, some of the standard regulations and enforcements that are causing uh, some of the problems here? Sure, I'll do my best. Uh, ESG <laughs> is a pretty fraught and loosely defined topic, so I, uh, I kind of lead with that because yeah. it's really hard to define and talk about, but I, I will do my best. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Criteria. Uh, the idea being that this is impact investing. So basically investors will create scores for companies and prioritize those in certain funds that do better. So typically big tech companies like Microsoft, Apple, they tend to have good ESG scores just by the nature of their business and the fact that they're the most successful companies in the world. So those funds might favor those players. And then across industries, they basically go rank companies based on those criteria, give them scores and invest that way. Uh, and so there are labeled ESG funds, and that's, as you were saying, a huge growing area, a few trillion dollars in labeled ESG funds globally. Uh, that's been rising a lot, took off in 2020. Uh, people expect that to continue to grow. 
the much broader point with ESG, and that's causing a lot of controversy, is that big investors like the Black Rocks of the world that manage money on behalf of others, they incorporate ESG factors and a company's impact on society when talking to big company management teams. So there's labeled ESG, and then there's a lot of stuff that happens behind closed doors. And it's really hard to the first point to define ESG and say one company's good ESG score or one investor's good ESG company might be another investor's bad ESG company. So the first part is very fraught. The second part that BlackRock and others say, hey, company X, you should probably do better on this stuff so you're, you make more money over time. Some conservative politicians and certain investors have flagged that and said, we don't want you to do that, just prioritize profits. So uh, we've seen a lot of backlash. We've seen states kick BlackRock and others out and say, you can't manage our small retirement funds. And we've seen a lot of po like po politics really come into play here uh, in the past few months. So it's a really interesting discussion and debate. What I prefer talking about, frankly, is energy and climate investing. You mentioned my job. So people conflate the two. They say ESG is all of energy and climate investing. That's not true at all. Like my point is let's stop debating whether ESG is good or bad. And let's talk about the trillions of dollars that need to shift toward cleaner energy sources. And let's talk about the trillions of dollars in potential stranded assets because that's money, that's deals, that's tangible. And debates about whether ESG is good or bad are much harder to pin down. Yeah, I got two questions uh, to follow up on. First is, I'd like to some, some stats here. I know, I think I saw you say that, you know, this sector uh, is th $3 trillion. And I also read that they're expecting by I think 2025, over half of all the assets managed is, are going to, to ESG funds. Is, is, is that accurate? Uh, the first one is like ESG AUM is enabled funds again, about 3 trillion and expected to grow rapidly. Uh, the stats vary in terms of what chunk of money will be going in. I've seen some that are say like one in three, one in four of every dollar basically okay. that's invested by companies and investors will have an ESG band. And I mean, again, this is like labeled ESG. Yeah. What's much not broader. always ESG funds. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right like the point is that if you talk to every large investor which I, this is all i spend my time doing they are all under immense pressure to do better in these areas every large company under immense pressure the total number of divestment commitments from fossil fuels among pension funds endowments uh like faith-based religious organizations has just hit 40 trillion dollars it's a tidal wave of capital that has said we are going to eventually move away from fossil fuels. So uh, yeah, you can debate like a lot of the nitty gritty stuff, but it's pretty clear. I like to, I, I like to say the train has left the station, right? Like people are long-term investing in cleaner energy sources. They are caring about diversity and some of these other issues. You can argue about the best ways to do that and who should be doing that and some of those nuances, but big picture, like the momentum is likely to continue because again, this is about making money and managing risk, which yeah. fundamentally is what everyone is trying to do. Yeah, I find that um, I do a lot of, or try to help a lot of our clients with um, social responsible investing. And I always try to have them define what that means to them because it's different for each person, um, each pension fund, each, you know, 
Um, some people, alcohol and tobacco is bad and other people are like, yeah, oh, that's a sin. You know, that's, that's their, their business. But the, the energy is an interesting one. I'd love to delve in a little bit more with you because, you know, a lot of my clients in the past have wanted to do an, an investment or what have you and, uh, or something for a tax break. And I'll be like, well, you could buy this oil and gas break here because there's huge, huge tax breaks for it. Um, versus there was nothing on the social, you know, you know, they couldn't buy a wind farm and get the equal <laughs> you know, tax write-off. So what are you seeing out there? Yeah, that's a really interesting discussion. I think to your point about defining this stuff, it's so important. And we often like, for, I think people forget even just in having conversations like this or just in trying to make investment decisions, whatever the case might be to your point, it's so important. And so even just getting in the same ballpark, like, are you wanting to divest completely from fossil fuels or are you okay investing in big oil and gas companies with the assumption that they will eventually clean up their act and that them cleaning up their act will be a fundamental part of lowering total societal emissions, which is uh, the prevailing view on Wall Street. Even agreeing on that, I think, is like basic stuff that not a lot of people think about even in just managing their individual investments. Um, and. I'm seeing just, again, a tidal wave of capital. It's remarkable to me how well private markets have held up for clean energy investing and the debt markets. So if you look at financing for this stuff, uh, clean energy, clean tech, has still raked in like $30 billion or so this year, just in equity, according to PitchBook. And that's a bit below last year's record clip, but that's much greater than the clips from like 2019 and 2020. Um, if you look at green bonds and sustainability linked bonds, like companies are still linking their borrowing costs to how well they do on this stuff. And you can say, a lot of people say, including me and others, like, well, that's probably stuff you were doing anyway, right? Like you're not really moving the needle that much to yeah. necessarily, and it's hard to verify and all of that. With all those caveats, this is where money is moving. This is where the private sector is moving. And I think the big energy companies have started to realize that too. And they've taken steps to invest in things like carbon capture and hydrogen and the new areas where they have expertise and they want to dominate. So things like the Inflation Reduction Act, where it basically says, if you produce lower carbon fossil fuels and you produce cleaner energy, you can make a ton of money and we will help you do that. That's literally the dream of so many Wall Street investors and so many giant energy companies that are diversified and that are going to be able to do that. So, so uh, do you think like these these um, states and things like that that are kind of doing this backlash against the ESG movement, the kind of anti-woke movement, I guess I'd call it, um, do you think because there's money to be made out there that they'll eventually change their, after the midterms are over, will they change their, their tune? <laughs> That's really hard to say. And I think, again, it's so important to even like define carefully what we're talking about. For a lot of the anti-ESG movement, they don't really even care about fossil fuels versus clean energy, at least explicitly. The undertones might be there when they're talking about that and saying like your divestment from fossil fuels. But the argument they're making is a bit broader and has to do with the fact that BlackRock and others and money managers should only care about profits and nothing else. So that could be energy, that could be factors like diversity or diversity. other social issues. But their whole point is Wall Street and others should just stick to their lane and nothing else. And Wall Street's argument is that the best way to make money is to prioritize social issues. So it's kind of like a 
that Spider-Man meme where they're both pushing <laughs> together and saying, they're all pointing you're anti-free market. <laughs> no, you're anti-free market. And so I think they think that's the best way to manage their money now and make their point yeah. and appeal to their constituents. But even some of those non-ESG funds that hold energy assets are invested in clean energy. That's the whole point. People yeah. <laughs> say ESG is divestment from fossil fuels when it's not. It's just, yeah. The anti-ESG crowd is not div- necessarily fully divestment, divesting. Right. And, I, well, it's, and it's the other way too, because I'll have a lot of people think that they've got an ESG fund when it's really something that I, I met a fund manager the other day at a dinner and you know he's like oh and I was like well I'm very interested to hear your ESG story and then I looked at the top 20 holdings and I was like this looks just like an S&P 500 fund exactly um, that's that's the thing that a lot goes, of but we hold it for a different reason and I was like <laughs> all right <laughs> right and I think look the private sector for how many decades their whole marketing and entire strategy is dressing up stuff yeah. in new labels and putting lipstick on a, a pig a, a didn't they do us didn't morningstar or someone do a study where they were like when the fund just changed its name how much money poured into it and they didn't do anything different exactly and that's like a lot of esg funds if you dig a little deeper the studies and academic studies yeah. and others have looked at it and shown like that's basically what it is it's largely holding big tech and other giant corporations because guess what our economy is driven by giant corporations whether or not we fight climate change will be driven by giant corporations so you can slice it a lot of different ways you can change the scores you can slightly modify weightings here or there but at the end of the day the stock market is what it is and like ESG funds might do a little better they might do a little worse but in the long run it's tough to discern in many cases so again I think it's a lot better to talk about what these companies are doing when they're spending money. And so I wrote about Vivek Ramaswamy, this anti-ESG activist investor at Chevron. And he makes a lot of points, but one of them is that he wants Chevron to, in the next decade or so, allocate capital how they want to, whether that's long-term fossil fuels or long-term clean energy. But I think we should be talking about that. And a lot of the conversation gets shifted in many cases to talk about, again, what's good, what's bad, but how big companies allocate their money, whether energy companies spend long-term on fossil fuels or cleaner energy, that's very concrete, that's very tangible, it's very important. And whether you wanna say that's ESG or that's impact investing, or that's another phrase that isn't even invented right now, I think isn't as big a part of that conversation again. Yeah, so go ahead, Diane. Oh, I was just gonna say, so what do you think is going to be the biggest lever in that discussion for those those corporate boards and that and allocating capital is it going to be the activist shareholder is it going to be the consumers that buy their products or it's uh it's an interesting question and again i don't i mean he holds himself like 0.02 percent of chevron stock or at least he did when i broke the story a couple of weeks ago i think his point is to be part of this like broader conversation about how those decisions are made and he again is he and others are going up against this tidal wave of capital and he argues that blackrock and others shouldn't take these factors into account but blackrock and others and most big companies are kind of again beholden to at the end of the day pension funds endowments and others that control the tens and hundreds of trillions of dollars in some cases so uh i think what i keep hearing when i talk to private sector executives is i have big investor pressure 
I have pressure coming potentially from regulators. I have more importantly, to your point, pressure from my end consumers and customers. And I have pressure from now my suppliers in every direction. So I, if you look at it, it's kind of like rippling up and down. And so, yeah, there might be blips in the road and there might be ups and downs where there's like anti-ESG sentiment, anti-clean energy investing sentiment, but traffic is still moving this direction long-term and no one I talked to is really stop. debating on that point. Because again, if you have automakers saying we need greener steel, steel companies are gonna make greener steel. <laughs> that's their end buyer, that's what they have to care about. And so again, people wanna dress this up and make it super complicated. This is about making money and being profitable over time, which is what all these people do. You think, are do you feel do you feel like this? Some of these companies are like, "Woo, thanks, uh, politician, for you know staying on my side," or do you think they're like, "Oh man, just stay out of it"? It's hard to say, and again, I think it depends on which points you're talking about. I think big energy companies do want to just invest their money how they see fit, and mm -hmm. they've been so unprofitable for so long, like a decade, that investors have now demanded. Uh, a lot of discipline and they've said don't spend on new projects until you know more about what they'll return and return a lot of cash to us but i do think again the important point now is that that cycle appears to be reaching a tipping point where chevron exxon and energy companies and other commodity producers like industrial metals they're now printing money commodity prices are actually high uh they've not they're not spending a ton like their profits are through the roof and they are now sitting on uh, just like this war chest of billions and tens of billions of dollars. And so I think it will be interesting how they decide to spend their money. And I do think they probably think they know how to spend it better than uh, BlackRock and other investors. And they probably do, right? Like if you're a co like company executive who this is your job, this is you spent decades doing this, they know these clean energy industries, they know how to be profitable. And at the end of the day, again, that's all they're trying to do is make the most money for themselves and their shareholders. So um, I don't know about some of the specific like moral and political and other arguments. Frankly, I think they just, and they've pushed back on like President Joe Biden making claims about oil companies and price gouging and supplies and stuff like that. So I think in general, they just like to stay in their lane and focus on running their business the best way they can. And that includes in this day and age, a lot of conversations about climate risk and opportunity and how social issues are filtering into the workplace and even things like return to office. So I think it's hard to like fully, I think they are just so focused on getting through the next three, six months and then a year and then managing that way. Um, but I think it's hard to say like, clim again, climate risk and opportunity are not fundamental material things to every person and every business. The new latest models have us blowing through the 1.5 degrees warming pathway in the next decade. People talk about it like it's some far off thing, but it's happening and every, if you can't see it happening, it's kind of hard to have those conversations. But again, I don't encounter that many people anymore who, and even the anti-ESG movement, they acknowledge, Vivek Ramaswamy acknowledged in his letter, uh, you make the political arguments or whatever, what you will, but he said, like climate risk, he basically says climate risk is a long-term risk and opportunity for Chevron or whoever. But his whole point again is who, like what stakeholders are taking responsibility for that. And he says, like the government should maybe do more and Congress should basically say, you have to do more and regulators should say it. And it's not necessarily Black Rocks or Chevron executives mm -hmm. main responsibility. But yeah, his whole point is just like, 
let's focus on profits and keep the discussions focused on money. So yeah, you can, again, you can debate the nitty gritty and how this stuff gets done. But the, again, the traffic is moving in this direction yeah. and the train has left the station in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the, the big investors, top private equity firms that are starting to focus more and more on, on a green energy? Uh, you know, I know they're investing in, in promising startups um, and we're seeing, you know, they have the, obviously the, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that are offering tax credits. Can you talk about, you know, private equity's involvement in, in, in that space? Yeah, that's a tough one, uh, again, <laughs> because private equity firms are so massive and so complex and they have so many different lines of business and they invest in infrastructure and all sorts of companies. So, yeah, we have seen most, again, big private equity firms say, we can make a ton of money if we handle the energy transition in a smart, sophisticated way, while probably still holding on to our fossil fuel assets <laughs> in the next 10, 20 years and on the side making money from those. So let's not sugarcoat it, right? Like that's Wall Street's playbook is to make money. And that right yeah. now that involves, like they have these existing fossil fuel assets that when prices are high are going to make a lot of money. They know that the lifetimes of those are winding down. There's like a limited window, but they're going to hold on to those and make money while they can. But their new funds are going to solely be dedicated in a lot of cases or mostly be dedicated to cleaner energy or cleaner solutions that are more tied to sustainability. So they are investing a lot, especially in new funds. And we've seen these mega funds, Brookfield yeah. just closed theirs with about 15 billion. TPG has one with 7 billion. Uh, like oh, there are a lot of huge private funds out there with billions of dollars for available for clean energy startups and companies doing this stuff. And a lot of it is data and technology that they think will be most profitable and underpin a lot of this. But again, yeah, the, the capital that's being spent now, you would imagine gets like multiplied over many times. So you can actually get to a place where it's again, hundreds of billions, if not trillions yeah. of buying power when you layer on those billions, the government is offering billions through the tax credits and other things you mentioned. And uh, yeah, so basically any startup in these spaces, any company, you're going to find money. And so again, now it's about permitting, it's about deployment, it's about all the stuff that has to happen to get these solutions to scale and hopefully like accelerate the build out over time. That And that's the complicated part that people don't like talking about that much because it involves a lot of like nitty gritty. It involves steel being put in the ground. It involves construction near your house, God forbid. So uh, there's still definitely a ton of work to do. And these big private equity firms still have a ton of work to do themselves to figure out what are my total financed emissions is the best way for me to divest or to engage with companies. We've seen companies like Carlisle basically say, we want to partner with oil and gas companies in Europe and South America and elsewhere, roll up our sleeves and hopefully uh, lower the emissions over time. It's kind of a self-serving argument because they get to still invest in, again, fossil fuel assets yeah. right now. But I do think it is interesting when you talk about what's the best way to actually lower the world's emissions. And it's easy to divest and then you look good, right? Like you're not invested. That's great. But someone else might pick that right. up. And the net result might be that there are actually more emissions if a smaller operator no one's ever heard of picks that up and finances it. So I think a lot of those harder conversations again need are being had, which is good, and more of them need to be had. And talking about this stuff like it's black and white and easy to figure out is a bit silly. But it's I like think I think sometimes when um, I know when I help my clients with these decisions that sometimes you will look at more activists 
models so that, you know, like you said, instead of just like, oh, I'm not touching that, um, you find a, a, a manager that is going to actually try to affect some change. And some, you know, sometimes that change doesn't have to be huge to be a huge impact, such as I remember hearing a story, I believe it was either Walmart or someone like that, um, big, big box chain switched all its light bulbs in the lighting section, you know, where you go to buy a lamp to, you know, um, high efficiency LEDs and it saved, I forget how much in their energy bill, their personal energy bill. So it was good for Walmart or whatever big box it was, but it was also a great environmental thing to not be using that much electricity. So they don't have to necessarily be very divert. And I don't think also personally, that a lot of companies or a lot of people have baked in the co long-term costs of certain behaviors. You know what I mean? So we might go, well, that's okay. Just keep, keep doing what you're doing. But then 30 years from now, there's a huge class action lawsuit that that company now has to pay out gazillions of dollars, mostly to lawyers. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, you know, we're not always baking in all the costs to whatever decision that they're making anyway. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think, so often it's like total financial cost and total carbon emission slash environmental footprint cost. And that is just like a very complicated equation and you have to kind of optimize for both over the long run to your point. So yeah, it's again, very easy to make a portfolio look super green, uh, but it's as people are learning this year, it's much harder to make a lot of money that sometimes <laughs> when energy is outperforming by just divesting. And again, every investor is trying to make money. So right. uh, you have to keep that in mind. Amazing and, how, how quickly people can change their tune uh, from, from a client <laughs> perspective. And I actually gave a talk at a church one time on how to be socially conscious in an unconscious world. And this was years ago, but I basically, it's like, it's almost impossible because even if you're keeping your money at a bank, so to speak, you know, cause I'm just not going to invest in anything. Well, that bank is lending that money it might be lending to your local developer that's plowing in a, you know, a, a river that you, you know, that that's part of the watershed. So it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to be a good, good person out there. All right. And I think that's where a lot of reasonable people eventually get to, right, is I, I'm an investor, I'm investing money to make more money. And uh, I want to keep these factors in mind with the idea that the companies that do the best at this, like we were just talking about, they'll probably make the most money, but trying to really change the world with your investments and spending habits is tough when, again, so much is controlled by a handful of big companies. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I think uh, that's what you hear a lot of different approaches on Wall Street about how people want to engage and do all of that and how a lot of that happens behind closed doors. So again, a lot of that is self-serving because then it's hard to measure and no one really makes right. progress. But again, I think it's, again, really hard to argue with tens of billions, hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars that are moving in this direction. But uh, it's also important to acknowledge like it's nowhere near enough. It's nowhere nearly fast enough. Like I was saying about like the models are pretty clear, like global warming is getting much worse. The climate risks and catastrophes are going to continue happening. So everyone needs to keep moving in this direction and keep doing more and uh, all I think of that. at least now most people acknowledge that climate change is real <laughs> my, my husband's an environmental scientist so i've been hearing about this for 30 years and he's just was so frustrated that now all of a sudden he's like well at least most people actually believe me you know so and i think uh that to your point about the inflation reduction act i've been hearing from i've been i talked to again a lot of investors a lot of private sector companies startups and they're saying that too right like the the US got its act together a bit and passed this massive piece of legislation that was bipartisan and got signed and $370 billion is a lot of money for energy and climate and 
all these tax credits and all of this stuff and the way it was structured for something like hydrogen where it's a sliding scale and the lower carbon it is the greater the tax credit so that includes carbon capture from hydrogen made from natural gas which a lot of big energy companies like and a lot of environmentalists don't like but a lot of pragmatists generally say that's the only way to make this stuff work is have a sliding scale that works for big existing companies now and we'll let them transition and make it better for startups that are trying to just do clean green hydrogen that might take a long time and a lot of spending so uh i think yeah the, the conversations are definitely they have changed a lot of progress has been made and all of that and uh again i think it's a lot of the debate is again about the how we get there and who should do what and what's the role of big investment firms and stuff like that which again is like good healthy debate to have but it i think people say anti-esg and they're like everyone a lot of people they make it sound like a lot of people and a lot of companies don't want to invest at all in climate change which i think is like not the right way to frame that discussion it's not really what they're talking about yeah, so kind of finishing up here, Amrith, I want to talk about uh, shareholder activism. You know, there's proxy voting. Are you seeing an increase in proxy voting and, and activism by shareholders to, to vote on these initiatives? Uh, it's, yeah, in both directions. So <laughs> I think there's been a lot of huge increase in like shareholder resolutions about ESG issues, which again, they that can mean a lot of different things. It can mean yeah. more disclosure about your environmental footprint. It can mean uh, you're just going to measure things like diversity in a new way and disclose more about them. Uh, it can mean many like certain things about your board of directors and how that's structured and how it performs. So when we say like ESG shareholder resolutions or anti-ESG shareholder <laughs> resolutions, that's such a broad umbrella and it can mean a lot of different stuff. And right. many of those resolutions get very muted support. But in general, yeah, we have seen more resolutions, more proposals. There are a lot of people on both sides doing that, which again, makes a lot of sense. And uh, I think the broad theme there is like investors are caring a lot about this stuff and regulators are, we've seen the proposals for greater carbon emissions disclosures and all of that. So yeah, I think that people expect it to continue and the anti-ESG Chevron campaign by Vivek Ramaswamy is in direct response to Engine Number One's campaign at uh, Exxon, which was like yep. a watershed moment for uh, climate investors and a lot of people on the clean energy side. So uh, again, the direction of travel though, it, it's not clear to me how that changes things that much in the end, right? Like uh, Exxon had to move and it was an important moment that Engine Number One came out and said, do X, Y, Z concrete things to move. And they won support from BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. And, that was a big deal. Um, and so Vivek is trying to go to Chevron and say, pump the brakes a bit on this stuff. But at the end of the day, if what ends up happening, right, is like they spend a tiny percent of their like spending budget or their profits more on clean energy or fossil fuels. And again, that's the spending, that's the stuff that actually drives their business and how much yeah. money they make. Like if the, you see what I'm saying, like the shift is not yeah. necessarily that big all the time and we talk about these things like it was a landmark, landmark that changed moment. everything <laughs> when at the end of the day a lot of these activist investors and everyone else they're also just trying to raise their profile make right. more money so it's like important to keep sight of like the big picture and how much how much how many financial consequences are yeah. actually at stake like people talk about this like it's 
a battle for the soul right. of corporate America. <laughs> they're like looking that. for that press release. There's no soul um, in corporate America. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, they're just I, looking for you to write about them in the journal. <laughs> I, uh, I, again, try to focus on where's the money going? What's the money right. doing? Uh, how much are you spending? What percentage of your profits is going in these areas and all that? All right, do you have anything to, to say about, uh, um, I don't know if you saw that uh, Senator Toomey um, was like chastising the SEC about today about the um, their proposal for uh, climate change and how it's probably going to end up in the Supreme Court. I don't know if you have anything you want to <laughs> talk about on that. I have not seen that. I've had a pretty busy day. Yeah, you should get, get reach out. You could uh, maybe get him a quote in your in your article. But yeah, he's. I will. <laughs> Again, I actually have so I've full disclosure. Like I, yeah, I don't do a ton on the disclosure side. We have other reporters in oh, okay. and elsewhere who cover uh, like. The disclosures and the impact on companies and all of that but i think yeah that has become this very politically fraught topic on both sides where people are trying to make it seem like a huge deal and politically motivated yada 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 at the end of the day again long term like and you can debate how this gets done whether it's the sec or investors but just generally again the end bottom line investment firms that everyone is beholden to want more disclosures so you can yeah. it, there'll be and having some and having some guidelines and having them consistent from company to companies to me doesn't seem like a terrible idea right so i think the specifics of like scope one scope two scope three when most people can't measure scope three accurately right now and scope three can be difficult and fraught for most of these giant organizations uh and enhance like a mul many different players like you can debate the nuances there you can say it's going to push up costs for some of these companies to deal with regulations and that's a lot of what they're fighting about shocker um so you can make all those arguments and they're important and it's an important debate to have but uh well, again the people i talk to are just like a lot of stuff is already voluntarily disclosed and a lot more will be and needs to be and it needs to be regulated at the end of the day is where a lot of people get to and say that uh like in the us by the sec but also globally but i think there's more and more data and more and more disclosure voluntary or not so and again a lot of that is driven by investor pressure so at the end of the day the specifics and the mechanisms and all of that might i don't know yeah you can you can fight about it you can argue about it but uh again i i like to always bring things back to where's the money going what are we spending on and disclosures help you get there but they're not necessarily like the hill to die on or the thing to spend hours and hours talking about and writing about in some cases i love it all right well let's end there almer thank you so much for coming back on the show this was very informative uh i know our audience will enjoy it and we hope to have you again uh back on in the future thanks so much for having me have a thank good rest you. of your day thanks, thanks Dan. all opinions expressed by rob santos and rory henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of our root family office llc or their parent company or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated on television radio internet or another medium you should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy but only as an expression of their opinions past performance is not indicative of future results